You're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Bath. To find out more about us, visit our website at www.oasisbath.org. Right, lovely to see you this morning. Um, so yes, we're continuing this series on uh, rethinking the Bible. Um, and uh, in tackling this subject, I think we're saying, saying two really important things. First of all, we, we're saying that we want to take the Bible seriously. So I think one of the things, one of the kind of myths, one of the things that kind of annoys me a bit is when people sort of assume that if your theology is progressive or liberal, to use old, older language, then that means you don't really care about the Bible, you've ditched the Bible. So this is a statement really just saying we're absolutely committed to the Bible. We want to try and take this book seriously, try and understand it and read it and so on. But it's also saying, because we're calling our series Rethinking the Bible... It's saying that we're not wedded to a particular understanding of what the Bible says, or even what the Bible is. If we're going to take it seriously, then we want to take it seriously. We want to try and let the Bible speak in its own terms, in its own way, rather than project and and, um, impose things upon it. So it means allowing it to speak for itself as far as we can. So those are two things, I think, that we're saying in tackling this subject. So... um, Last week, as in just over uh, seven days ago, we were on holiday in Mallorca, which was, um, you know, somebody's got to do it, it was okay. Um, It was great, it was really nice, uh, except for the midges. We didn't expect midges in Mallorca. Uh, You'd expect it in the Lake District of Scotland, but not in Mallorca in September. But they were there because uh, halfway through the week, Joel and I um, began to get itchy bumps appearing on our legs and arms. And uh, Julia... Seemed to get away with it. I think she's probably more holy than us or something, so she, she kind of seemed to get away with it, but we didn't. Um, and so, like uh, maybe most of us these days, and certainly me, if, if there's something wrong, I, I want to know what it is. So we go online, don't we? We look online. Um, and so I did that, and there was, there was quite a lo- lot of information out there. Uh, some of it was quite helpful. Some of it was contradictory, as always is the case. Um, and the great challenge when we're using the internet to find out anything is, is just knowing, is this source reliable? Somebody sent me something last night saying, I found this, do you think it's okay? And I had to say, no, I don't think it is actually. Um, and that's the big challenge, isn't it? Those are the questions that we want to ask. We want to ask, well, who's written this? Where does it come from? What knowledge do they have? What are their motives in writing this? Those are the sorts of questions that there's there's a real skill, I think, to learning how to use the internet. It's something we need to be teaching our our children and young people. Uh, Or maybe they can teach us, maybe they know more about it already. Um, And these are good questions, I think, to ask when it comes to the Bible. These same questions. Who's written this? What knowledge do they have? Where does this come from? What's the motivation? Uh, And that's our starting point, in a sense, that it's okay to ask questions. The Bible isn't above scrutiny. I think that's one of our key tenets, really, when we're looking at the Bible and taking the Bible seriously. We're wanting to approach it with our eyes wide open, if you like, with our critical faculties engaged rather than put to one side. Uh, And asking questions uh, and debating answers is actually a very Jewish way of reading the Bible. Um, and, And that's what we want to try and do. We want to try and really engage with it. So let's have a look at this book and see what we can discover about where, what it is and where it comes from. So, under the, your seats, you should have a couple, a, a copy of a Bible. Now, it may be some time since you've held a Bible in your hand, um, either because you read it on your phone or some other device, or 
Maybe you just don't really read it at all very much these days. But uh, these are our church Bibles. It says on the front, church edition. And it's stamped inside, Hayhill Baptist Church. So if you find one of these on your shelves, you know where it belongs. So we have the Holy Bible, New International Version. Um, And I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles, not at uh, Genesis 1 or anywhere else, but at the preface. So if you'd like to turn with me to the preface, which you may not have studied in any great depth before now. I suspect most of us just skip over it, and why wouldn't you really? But um, because that, that first sentence that we find is actually quite helpful. So... There it goes. So the opening sentence of the preface says, the New International Version is a completely new translation of the Holy Bible made by over 100 scholars working directly from the best available Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek texts. Okay, promising start. So that tells us actually some really important things about this book and about what it is that we're holding in our hands. So uh, it tells us, first of all, that it's a translation Okay, you probably knew that already, but it's a translation from three ancient languages, uh, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. So modern Hebrew, modern Greek differ somewhat from the ancient languages, the biblical languages. So there is a sense in which they are quite distinct in some ways. So we've got these three ancient languages. Aramaic was probably the language that Jesus spoke. Small parts of the Bible are written in, originally in Aramaic, but mostly Hebrew and Greek. So it's a translation. And so the book you're holding in your hands is a particular translation called the New International Version. Um, and you probably know there are lots of other translations around, although not as many as you might think, because very often there are lots of different editions of the Bible around, loads and loads, but most of them are a repackaging of the same translation. So the number of different translations isn't that huge. Um, in in sort of relative terms. Um, But I've got another one here, which is uh, the New Revised Standard Version. This is my ordination Bible. So this was uh, presented to me when I was ordained in this very building uh, back in 1995. So um, that's been with me a while. So this is the New Revised Standard Version. This is a more literal translation than the NIV, a bit more word-for-word translation. Uh, It tends to be used a bit more by people who are doing academic study for that reason. Uh, And interestingly, uh, there are a number of extra books in here that you won't find in the NIV, some books that we call the Apocrypha, some books that were written between the sort of end of the Old Testament period, as we normally think of it, and the New Testament period. So that's an interesting addition. So some different wording, different phrasing at various points, but also some extra books So it's a bit of a bonus package, if you like. You get a bit more for your money if you buy one of these. Uh, So there's another translation. Okay. So it's a translation. Um, And this uh, little sentence at the beginning of the preface also tells us that this process of translation is complex. So it involved... uh, This translation was made by over 100 scholars... And if you read on a little bit through the preface, you get a little bit of an idea of what's involved in this process of translation. So a translation like the message is quite unusual because it's a translation, it's the work of one person. 
Um, but Eugene Peterson, the guy who translated it and produced the message, had the benefit of all the academic study that had been done before. He wasn't holed up somewhere in a cave with lots of ancient manuscripts just trying to figure it out. He was able to draw on all this other scholarship. Uh, but translations like the message are quite unusual. They, generally speaking, translations of the Bible are collaborative efforts involving lots and lots of scholars and academics and various other people. And the other thing that we, uh, we can see from this, uh, this sentence, this opening to this preface, is uh, some indication as to why the process of translation is so challenging. Why does it need over 100 scholars? Well, it says that they were working directly from the best available Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek texts. So when we were uh, on holiday in Mallorca, we visited this... Um, did I tell you we've been to Mallorca? It's very nice. Um, we were visiting this uh, hermitage up on the top of a, a mountain, um, and there's a little cafe there, and uh, I noticed that there was a... Um, on the counter, there was a copy of the uh, novel by uh, Maggie O'Farrell, the novel Hamnet, in Spanish. So uh, whoever was uh, serving, it was obviously reading this book uh, in Spanish. Now, I imagine that the process, I don't know any Spanish, so for me it would have been troublesome, but I imagine for those who could do the job, that the process of translating Hamnet into Spanish was relatively straightforward because there was a, an original English authorised text to work from uh, and presumably the author was available to consult as well if there were any actual queries. So the process of, of translation was relatively straightforward. But arriving at an English translation of the Bible is not the same as producing a Spanish version of Hamnet by any means, because there is no standard version of the text in its original languages. There isn't a standard sort of authorised version. This is the Old Testament in Hebrew that everybody says, yes, this is obviously, this is the thing that we need, then need to translate. There's this whole process that needs to be gone through in order to arrive at a translation. And what we call the Old Testament in the NIV is based on something which is called the Masoretic Text, which was a version of the, it's kind of the authorised version, if you like, of the, the Hebrew Bible within Judaism. It was produced by a group of scholars called the Masoretes sometime around the 7th to the 10th centuries AD. So well over a thousand years after the events that are recorded in the Old Testament. So the sort of standard text as far as there is one would be that. But actually this translation draws on that text, but other texts as well. So um, I have also my library. So this is my... Hebrew uh, Bible, my Old Testament, uh, as we call it in Hebrew. Uh, you have to remember to read, to start from the back, because we read from right to left in Hebrew. Uh, but there's a list in the beginning here of the various um, editions of the text that they've used to produce this translation. Um, the translators of the NIV have drawn on other texts as well. There's one particular translation of the uh, Old Testament called the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation that was made by supposedly a group of 70 scholars, hence the name. That tends to be the translation that's used in the New Testament. So if the New Testament writers quote the Old, they tend to quote from that Greek version of the Old Testament, not the original Hebrew, and there are some significant differences. 
So even, even there where we might be able to say, well, you know, yeah, there's, there's a, there is a standard text there somewhere, well, it's not quite as straightforward as that. Um, and so the process of producing the NIV translation of the Old Testament is drawing on these various traditions and streams. When we come to the New Testament, the, the situation is even more complicated. So the oldest complete copy of the, the uh, New Testament dates from the 4th century. And that tends to form the basis for this translation. But there are multitudes of other manuscripts. And the principle that translators adopt is, well, let's go back to the earliest manuscripts that we can find, the earliest sources. So as I said, the, main, the earliest copy, complete copy of the New Testament that we have dates from the 4th century. But you might think, well, that's 300 years after Jesus. That's kind of quite a big gap, isn't it? So if we can go back closer to the actual time of the New Testament, that's going to be helpful, isn't it? And that means that the translators are often working with, with little fragments of a text. It might just be a sentence or something that someone has found, and they think, well, that, that seems a bit older and it's slightly different, so we're going to use that. So this whole process of producing um, a New Testament is quite complex. So this is my Greek New Testament. So um, I should say I've not delved into these books for a little while. Um, <laughs> but they're there on my bookshelf. So this is the Greek New Testament that I have. So it's as close as we might get to an agreed original, but it's very much a product of, in this case, the 20th century. This isn't something that dates way back. This is something that was produced in the 1970s, I think, this edition. So it's a complicated business. You may have, a lot of that may have perhaps gone over your head, but the point is it's a complicated business producing a, a translation. And there is a degree of subjectivity in all of this. It says they use the best available. Well, who says what's best? Immediately there's some subjectivity in there, isn't there? Who decides what the best texts are? And there would be those who would say, actually, translations like the NIV are suspect because of the text they use. They want to hold on to using the King James Version because it's more sound because these other texts have become corrupt and so on. So there's whole debates around this. So it's a complicated business, as I say. And the reason for that complexity is that the Bible originated in an oral uh, context where very little was written down. So even where there was a written text, there would have been very few copies that would have existed. So the point is that there is no original version of the Bible that's been translated into this book. There's what, what we do have, this book, is a product of centuries of oral transmission and then gathering together of those traditions and writings at various points. Things were gathered and collected, put together, written down. And that process of gathering and combining texts has continued and it's an ongoing process. So since this edition of the NIV was produced, it's been revised a couple of times. And my Greek New Testament has been revised three times. So there's an ongoing process of translation, of, of, of determining what this text is that we're trying to make sense of. And there are other texts, there are Arabic and Syrian texts that haven't really been looked at yet. There are Dead Sea Scrolls that haven't really been studied. So it's an ongoing process. Now, all of that might feel a little bit unsettling. You might think, well, I thought this... I thought at the very least, you know, we know what this book is. And you might think, well, ah, we're on sort of shaky ground here. Um, but actually, I think it's kind of a 
quite exciting in a sense, because we're part of, as, as we read this book and try and make sense of it, we're part of this kind of ongoing process of, of trying to do that. This isn't some fixed ancient text that we're then trying to delve back into all the time. There is this sense in which there's an ongoing process that we're part of. And it requires us to trust that the Spirit of God will lead us as we do that as well. So there are issues, I think, when we come to thinking about the Bible itself, even as a, <clears throat> even as a fixed entity. Um, and then even if we decide what the Bible actually is, what the text is that we're working from, there's all the issues around translation. Once we've arrived at a translation, there are issues around interpretation. We all know that you and I could read a passage from this book and come to some quite different conclusions about what it means and how to apply it to our lives. So this journey from original sources to us being able to sit down and read and understand in our native tongue is a very long and in some ways quite a torturous process. And so there's a point in this, um, in this preface where the translators say that they were united in their commitment to the authority and infallibility of the Bible as God's word in written form. Now I, suggest, I suspect they put that in because they felt they had to. At the end of the, the statement, the very last paragraph of the preface, it says, like all translations of the Bible, made as they are by imperfect man, this one undoubtedly falls short of its goals. That seems a much more realistic assessment of what, what this is. It's an attempt. It's, a, it's, a, it's an attempt to create something which is as true as possible to the original, but there is always this sense of Openness, really. The sense of uncertainty, questioning around what it is. Have we got it right? Have we got what it is that we're trying to do? And I think all of this leads to, to a point that Ian got us to last week, which is to say that I think if we talk about this book as the word of God, I think we've got problems. I think it's problematic because of that journey, that process by which we arrive at this book, and that sense that actually there's, 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 there's so much that's uncertain and unclear as we go through that journey. And if you think about it, um, if the book you're holding is the Word of God, then is this the Word of God as well? With extra books and different wording and different phrases and so on. Are they both the Word of God? How does that work? So that I think there are all sorts of issues around it in terms of just the practicalities. What is it we're holding in our hands? What is this thing that we're looking at? Does it make sense to say that this particular book, is it the 1983 edition, which is the Word of God, or is it the 2012 edition? Which sounds a bit facetious, but I think those are genuine questions. If we're going to attach that label to a particular book, is it actually, does it make sense, and is it helpful is it actually helpful? And I think there's the, so there are problems with it in, in sort of logically, but there are also problems, I think, theologically, because if we say that this book is the word of God, I think we go beyond what the Bible itself says, because the New Testament is clear that Jesus is the word of God. Jesus is the ultimate revelation of who God is, who the Father is, and, and what it means to be human, what it means to be a child of God, all of that stuff. Jesus is the word of God. And I think when we, 
one of the problems with saying that this book is the word of God is it creates a kind of level playing field where every text has the same merit and same value. And that's not the way it works. That's not the way we read it, is it? Even if we believe that in principle, in reality, we don't read the Bible in that way. And the danger with that is that actually we end up relegating Jesus. And we say, well, some obscure passage in Leviticus has equal value to a saying of Jesus that we read in the Gospels. And we've, we've kind of, we've done something odd there. We've actually moved away from saying, well, this, this is about Jesus. This book is designed to point us to Jesus, to draw us to Jesus, to show us what it means to follow him. Because in following him, we discover who we are, we discover who God is, we discover what life is about. So it might seem as if we're ditching something which is quite fundamental and really important when we say, let's stop using that language about this book. But what we're doing is we're saying, that's a construct. That's something that we've placed on this book. It's not what the book says about itself. And actually, if we get rid of that, if we choose to put that to one side and think about this book in a different way, then I believe that we're more able to hear what it is that God wants to say to us. So I'm aware that um, I've rambled on for far too long already this morning. Um, So uh, I wanted to say a little bit about what the book is, because it would seem like it's a bit uh, bit naff to just say, well, it's not this. But I think if you read, if we look at the, uh, 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 just, yeah, let's, let's just quickly do that. So if you move on to the contents page, all right, so we're making progress. <laughs> We've moved on from the preface to the contents page. So, um, and the contents page just reminds us, again, as Ian, uh, I think, said last week, and, and we've, we've said many times, but it bears repeating. The Bible is a library of books, or perhaps a li- two libraries of books, kind of. Um, different books uh, put together at different times, reflecting different, different cultures, different contexts, different situations. Um, and even here, the, the, um, the, kind of the, the, the headings of the books can sometimes obscure some connections. So some of the books belong very much together, but also within books. So the book of Isaiah, for example, very naturally falls out into three parts from chapters 1 to 39, 40 to 55, 56 to 66. Uh, and those, those parts of Isaiah reflect different periods of Israel's history, and they're saying different things. So even within a book which has the same, uh, which has the same name, we, we get some very different things going on. But we get these different strands and streams, these different traditions that are all pulled together uh, in these books. And so I think it's helpful to think about the Bible in that way, as, as a library, as a, as a collection of books that are reflecting different cultures, different times and places and so on. Um, and to see that sometimes they will be uh, debating with one another. There's a kind of internal debate that sometimes we find within the Bible, almost as we read one passage against another. And that doesn't have to be difficult. I think that just, if we understand the Bible as being this collection of books, this library in that way, then I think that kind of makes sense. But at the same time, I think I would also want to say that we need to see the Bible as one story as well. There is a sense that there's a story which connects all of this together. There's a reason why all of these books are collected together in one place. Because there is a story which is being told, and at the centre of that story is Jesus. 
It's the story of God and his dealings with his people uh, and his dealings with his people in order to bring blessing to the world. That's the story that the Bible tells. And at the center of that story is Jesus, the one that we follow. And so it seems to me that it makes sense to think of the Bible in terms of a book of testimony, to think of it as bearing witness. As I was thinking about this, it struck me that essentially the Bible is our family history. The Bible tells us where we came from. It's not just their history, it's our history. This is our story. This is what we're part of as well. And so our job is to try and hear the story, to listen to the story, to try and engage with the story, to understand it, but not in order to kind of recreate past history. I don't want to be part of a church that looks like the church that met in Jerusalem in the first century for all sorts of reasons, mainly because we'd be persecuted probably. Um, but, you know, that's not our job. Our job is to say, what does it look like now? What does this story look like now? What's the next chapter in this story going to look like? Because the story is ongoing. And so this is a resource for us. This is, this is, our, this is our family history. It tells us where we come from, where, who we are. And out of that, it helps us to figure out what, what are we meant to be doing? What are we meant to look like? What, what does church look like? What, what, does our, what do our lives look like at this time and in this place? And that's why we seek to engage with this book. That's why we still wrestle with it. That's why we don't just leave it on the shelf. That we try and understand what it's saying. But we do so in order to live out our lives here and now and to figure out what that looks like. So let's pray, shall we? Father, we do thank you for this book. Thank you, Lord, that uh, it can speak into our lives today. And thank you, Lord, that, that when we read this book, sometimes we get that sense that it is your word to us, that you're speaking to us. But not because so much of the book itself, but because it's the work of your spirit engaging with our spirit, that you speak to us through it. And so we just pray that we would, we would have that, those experiences, those times when we read the Bible in that way, when we hear you speaking to us through these words. Help us to understand it. Help us to make sense of it. Help us to figure out what our lives should look like here and now, in this time and this place. And Lord, we pray that we might do this in order that we can be a people of blessing to others. Lord, as we reflect on the story, we know that, that's, that that was your purpose in calling your people Israel, your purpose in sending Jesus, your purpose in forming the church by the power of your Spirit, in order that we might be a blessing. And so we ask that as we continue to grapple with this book, that we might, uh, that we might fulfill that calling and that promise. In Jesus' name, amen. You're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Bath. To find out more about us, visit our website at www.oasisbath.org.